This is Mike Montero. I'm Erica Hall. This is Larissa Berger. We're broadcasting from Mule Design Studio in beautiful North Beach, San Francisco. This is Voice of Design. Have you been doing this summer? You know what I did get to do that was really cool in the process of dropping the teenager off at space camp in Huntsville. Ooh, that sounds really fun. Space camp. Space camp. I always space wanted camp. to go to the real space camp and my mom wouldn't figure well, it out. Now you can join Space Force. Oh, I yeah. <laughs> but I interrupted your story. No, not no. I was just We took a side trip to the new museum and memorial in Montgomery, which was incredible. Oh, wow. And I think really good to take a couple of white teenagers, my yeah. kid and her best friend, to go and see that. And they were really responsive. And I mean, I couldn't obviously help but respond. So that was my best trip of the summer so far. Oh, that's that's cool. I've seen the photos and it looks just a- amazing. Astounding. Yeah. Overwhelming. Um, but also. Uh, rough. Rough. And also one of the best designs I've seen recently. That mm-hmm. You can't take pictures inside the museum, which is kind of too bad because it's just an incredible educational design. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that they present uh, some really challenging primary artifacts and so forth. So. Oh, wow. But yeah, since we were going to Huntsville, mm-hmm. it's only a couple more hours south. Yeah. Yep. Welcome to Voice of Design, everybody. Hello. This is Mike. This is Erica. Are we not doing last names anymore? I don't know. I mean... <laughs> I'm Larissa Berger. It's Larissa Berger. And our guest today, we have a very special guest with us today, Sid Harrell. Hi, Sid. Hi, Erica. Welcome to the Voice of Design. Thank you. And well, I guess we can start here with our customary question. Uh, what do you think is the job of a designer? That's a great question to say in a few words. Um, I think in some ways the job of a designer is to be a pain in the ass for good. No, that's a good definition. That's how I interpret it in a lot of my jobs in any case. And to do it politely enough that they let you get away with it. <laughs> yeah, walking that line. We always enjoy walking that line. And uh, and we were really excited to have uh, you with us today because you've been, uh, I won't say that you've been, a, I won't presume that you've been a pain in the ass in the public sector, but. <laughs> I'm pretty sure some people uh, would say so. <laughs> she's totally a pain in the ass. <laughs> Thank you, Micah. Everybody in this room is a pain in the ass. Why, why are we being weird about it? Sid, you've been working in the public sector for a while. Mm-hmm. You've been all over the place. You've done some amazing stuff. So here's my question. Yeah. So I'm a designer. Mm-hmm. I've been in the private sector for a long time, working yep. at companies, starting my own company, st- startups here and there, that sort of thing. I know how to get those jobs. Yeah. How the hell do I get a job in the public sector? That's a great question. Uh, I'm going to actually name a bunch of segments for you because compared to, say, five years ago, seven years ago, there's a ton of opportunity where there actually will be a job posting and you can go apply for it. And wait a minute. Let's what, what, let's take an, an even further step back yeah. to make sure that people understand what we're talking about. What the hell is the public sector? <laughs> what are we talking about when we say the public sector? Yeah. So economists, I think, have a specific definition that includes a bunch of things. But I think the reason that you all wanted to talk to me today was mainly about government at various levels, which is actually complicated, right? Because in the United States, we have a federal government. We don't. 
Well, <laughs> there was a point when we did. It's in the Constitution. In, in our Constitution, <laughs> right. we have a federal government. Right. And then we have 50 state governments, and they have different responsibilities than the federal government. And then each of those states has a number of counties, and those county governments take care of specific things. In a big city like San Francisco, where we're all sitting, right, we actually have a unified government of the county government and the city government. Right. Um, so do cities like Miami. So you always hear Miami-Dade County. Mm -hmm. In places that are largely rural and less densely populated, the counties have a pretty important role, like the sheriff is always a county employee. The counties run the elections. Counties maintain vital records, not cities or towns. So, so then you have your municipal, city, and town-level government, and then you may have overlays of, say, water districts or other kinds of districts. So we all interact with multiple levels of government every day, even if you're just talking about the government as public sector. A lot of people, and I think economists would include universities, some would include arts organizations like museums and so forth. Some would include almost everything in the nonprofit sector as part of the public sector. Uh, okay. Disney World is a water district, right? I would not be shocked. I, I think so. I think that's <laughs> they, they set up a water district so that they could essentially run that Control part of Florida. Yeah. D Disney World is, I believe, a county. Well, it's, it's they've set up their own county. They have their own post office and their own zip code. Yeah, it's a whole. It's a I whole mean, thing. I know that Florida. that's not a one to one Those relationship. Those things are federal. Well, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, there is a Disney World post office. Oh, that's amazing! And yeah. then they have their special town as well. Oh yeah, celebration. Celebration. Yes. Celebration, yes. Florida. Yeah, so I don't think that would really count as the public sector. That <laughs> yeah, so I think we're yeah we're particularly I'd say interested in government because the government does a lot of things like as much as people who read a lot of Ayn Rand would argue against mm -hmm. the government I think does a lot of things that private companies can't accomplish for people and there's so much focus on designers working uh, and trying to do innovative things and save the world and do all that stuff and do good within the context of you know a, a company that's set up to make money. And the reason we we're interested in talking to you is because we, we've had some discussions about the, the fact that that's just not possible. Like there are problems that you need government to solve. Yeah, I agree. And I actually think, you know, scratch a Randian, you will still find someone who thinks that the government should tell them the best way out of town in a hurricane. It's like <laughs> everybody has something that they think the government should assist you with. And there's a hell of a lot of negotiation around where that line is. But well, let's not forget that Anne Rand wrote those books on social security. Right. I, I, just, I, <laughs> I love tossing that in at every opportunity. I am so glad to give you one. Yeah, thank you. So we have all of these levels of government. And when I started nosing around about this in 2010, 2011, um, I could find one designer who was employed in a municipal government. And the guy's name was Chris Geyser, and he was working for the city of Raleigh. Um, he's not a municipal designer at this point anymore. He's moved on. But um, now... I see amazing things happening from designers that I have never met, don't know, who are working for cities around the country. So there's really been a movement to hire designers directly into governments. Uh, for example, in San Francisco, for a long time, there was a mayor's office of civic innovation that had a couple of people and people in on fellowships. But now there's a whole service design department under Carrie Bishop um, that is regularly hiring designers. Boston, similarly, New York has several departments that are doing it. Of course, these are big cities. And so designers who live in a big city have certain opportunities in those places. Aside from those, states are getting more and more into it. Um, 
California has several things going on that you would recognize as design initiatives and design jobs. So there's the child welfare digital services. Mm-hmm. There's um, some work in the California Government Operations Agency, which just recently published a set of web design standards for California based on the U.S. web design system with, you know, California colors and poppies. It's actually quite nice. Where did the U.S. design system come from? That was a project um, by two designers, one who worked at 18F and one who worked at USDS. Um, When when I say USDS, that's the United States Digital Service. And those are another category of public sector design job that people can consider. Um, They're term jobs with the federal government where you actually are a federal employee. The digital service is largely based out of Washington. 18F is largely remote and people can work from anywhere. And uh, designers uh, Maya Benari and Molly Ruskin decided that the United States really ought to have a set of web design standards, much like Gov.UK mm-hmm. also does. And they they did it as a passion side project and then managed to get support for it from those agencies. And it's gotten more and more officialized and built into work that's being done in the federal government. It's not a required adoption, but... It's out there. If you Google U.S. web design system, you'll find a really nice and flexible set of well-coded design elements that government agencies can use. Yeah, that's cool because I think it's the, the gov.uk people uh, were doing really doing the conference circuit for a while because they did such amazing work. Yeah. And they, I think, really helped raise the profile that, oh, yeah, like dealing with your government, you should have a good interface to government services. Yes. Nobody had really, I think, ever thought about that before because you just have this mindset of, well, everything's the DMV or the IRS and it's going to be terrible and uh, and something happens with bureaucracies. And then they made, and, and of course the UK is a much smaller country, but they made that whole process so transparent. Uh, I think that really helped kind of raise the profile I absolutely agree. And I I also think that design still looks fresh and beautiful and like nothing else on the web. And we are six years on now. So that is really. I remember. Yeah, I remember going to conferences and everybody was like on acid about startup. (laughs) And here come, I mean, here come, you know, these. British civil servants. (laughs) British civil servants. Very very charming. Very nice. And here they are talking about like, oh, we've made a, a design system for government. And and people weren't ready to pay attention yet. Yeah. I'm like, that's cool. Okay. And, and it really, so, you know, when I talk about what opportunities you have, a lot of them came out of the healthcare.gov crisis. Mm-hmm. So. What was the, when you say crisis, what was the crisis? Um, so this was in 2013 when the healthcare.gov site launched, but did not work at all. And it was President Obama's signature initiative And the fact that a failed website could potentially take down an administration was something that a lot of people paid attention to. Obama was well-connected in Silicon Valley, and so he made some phone calls and brought in a bunch of people on temporary contracts to fix it. And there's a whole story, which is not my story. I wasn't part of it. But if you ever get a chance to hear Mikey Dickerson tell it, it's amazing, of rescuing that site and making it work and discovering what was going on behind the scenes. And a number of the people who participated in that rescue kind of caught the bug, you know, in the sense of this affects not millions, hundreds of millions of people Mm -hmm. in a very profound way. How can I keep doing this? So there are several sort of what I call new school federal contractors that were started by people who were part of that rescue, who are looking to do ethical contracting for 
technology services with the government. So primarily off the top of my head, that's Nava PBC, which is a public benefit corporation, um, Ad Hoc, which works largely on healthcare related stuff. Um, Siberia is another one. And so you might, you know, recognize those names and see some of those people out and about at design conferences, and they are working almost exclusively with the federal government, but trying to provide more of a, you know, what you'd call a uh, an environment like you might have at any high capacity design and build shop where everybody's working sort of agile and small teams and designers are working in systems and designing in the browser and, you know, things that would be very recognizable to a currently working designer. Because a lot of what came out of that crisis, if I remember correctly, was that the government processes for procurement um, <laughs> just didn't really suit software at all. Is that is that accurate? Am I or because it's definitely accurate? I went to a talk by someone from ATF, and I remember there was something to that, but it wasn't exactly the healthcare scenario. It, they were talking about a different project. Yeah, so there's been a whole big stream of. People who work in civic tech focusing primarily on the procurement issue um, because it is really difficult. And I have worked on this more at the municipal level and the federal level myself. But if you think about it, there's a lot of knowledge in how to procure good design services. So if someone is to write a strong brief that would attract a company like Mule to bid on it, if they are not familiar with the design world and they maybe don't have the skills to state their design values or their design goals very well, and it comes out looking like a really bureaucratic RFP, a lot of firms are going to pass on that Yeah, mm -hmm. if it's not their focus to work with government. We were never able to bid on those because it would take like another team the size of our current team just to deal just to do the RFP yeah. just to do the RFP yeah because yeah. we went to a few years ago we went to an information session for the city of San Francisco for something uh it was something in environmental or oh I know who got that actually really yeah um <laughs> they still have the contract and they're terrific and oh, it's a local B Corp called Exegy Oh, cool. Nice yeah. folks. Yeah. So we went there to say like, oh, because we'd love to make services in San Francisco better and more accessible because everything was terrible. And we thought this was interesting. <laughs> and we knew other people at the information session. But the fascinating part was that the people who were like the sponsors of the, of the project, who would be the actual clients, were great, lovely people who mm -hmm. knew things about things. And then there was the <laughs> procurement process. And I just remember there was a, an information sheet on my seat. I've been able to read English for much of my life and <laughs> I could not understand a single sentence of this information. I, I absolutely could not. And, and what we learned is that there were a lot of um, people who were already set up to contract with the city who were there to meet the people who could yeah. provide the services and then just essentially take 20% off to act as right. the... That was the prime. Yeah, as the prime. And and that, yeah, we walked away from that. Like, okay, that would be I don't neat, blame you. But we, but, couldn't, we couldn't afford to. We couldn't yeah. afford to, yeah. to deal with anything like that. So yeah. there are starting to be some strong local firms that do this kind of work that are sort of figuring it out. But when I've been talking with folks from them recently, um, it's still a hard business. And so one of the projects that I want to do, and maybe if I say it here, that'll increase yeah. my chances of actually committing to doing it, is band some of those people together so that they just can talk to each other. Because as far as I can tell, there's sort of one or two in each big town that are, are mm -hmm. really combining that kind of, 
you know, high capacity modern practice and also figuring out the government side of it. Hmm. Yeah, it's tough because the way that and we've seen this with other like we've worked with a lot of universities and and large organizations and the way that organizations are often comfortable thinking about and purchasing services has no relationship to how those services can be or should be provided. And that's that's a huge gap. I mean, at one point, 18F sent over someone to talk to me about, in some sort of fact-finding, like, this man is from the government and he wants to know what <laughs> you look for in an RFP or in a contract and just find out to learn about the uh, the process from, from our side. And that's like, that's such a hard uh, gap to jump. It's really, and it's really tough on their side. And, you know, exactly what you said about there are people who know things about things and there are really good people whose job, frankly, includes a lot of what we would all recognize as design decisions Mm -hmm. um, and who make them as absolutely best they can and often make decent ones, Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes make really good ones, but just don't have the framework of design practice or, or design community to help them with that. So it's always great once you get past all of that and meet those people. But because of lacking that framework, they don't necessarily know how do I write something to secure the work that I want. Right. Right. Yeah. Because when you talk to designers or people working in agile processes, it, it sounds like you're you're buying complete vapor. You know, you're just there's <laughs> yeah. no like you can't commit to anything. It's like, oh, we're going to think about this and we're going to solve your problem. But when you start talking about, oh, what concrete deliverables am I going to get on what date? And can I know that right. two years in advance? No. But if I'm a steward of public funds and I'm going to commit money collected from people like all of us to doing something, it's a very, very scary prospect not to know that I'm going to get the thing at the end. Mm -hmm. Where have you seen the the kind of like evolution in thinking? Like, have there been breakthroughs in terms of, because I think that would also help anybody who's dealing with somebody from a more traditional organization. Because I know, you know, Jeff Gothelf has been running into this, trying to sell like lean UX to people and getting people to change their budgeting processes to be more uh, flexible. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a really long-term process. And if you can get people started with a little engagement, so that, you know, that was something that we worked on at 18F was we we shrunk the size of our minimum engagement so that we could sell somebody something that was relatively comfortable for them and us if it didn't work out. Mm-hmm which we were only able to do because we were working on interagency agreements, which are a lot less, uh, a lot fewer pages, let's say, than your Mm -hmm. typical RFP and a lot less process, even though they would still take a number of months to complete. But I think it's, you know, it's exposure to it and it's very easy to be insulated inside of government. So even though if I'm going into a government space, I am sort of the person entering and being the ambassador, the invader, however you want to put that, (laughs) um, I still feel like it's on me to then open my practice and invite people to come in. And if I do that successfully, then I can start to help people see that, oh, okay, this is reliable. There are different words that are used to describe the outcomes that we're looking for maybe, but they are real. This is a rigorous system. And this is something that we might be able to experiment with. And then if we have a successful experiment, it starts to look like actually we got a lot done for less money. That's a goal that I can take to upper government management, because in government, you're always going to be hitting a level where the person is not, um, not design, I don't want to say competent, like design infused, not a huge, 
Oh yeah, they don't have the domain expertise. Yeah, thank you. They have. They have, <laughs> they have other domain expertise, to, which is running a government or an, yeah, or an agency. agency or, yeah. yeah, which is very different from having. So it's like this. It's like a a very um, what's the word? Like it's a magnified case of of dealing with any client who knows their business doesn't know design, but it's huge because because there is that responsibility. It's not like oh, I've got to make this quarter profitable. It's, oh, I'm responsible for regulation or public health or. And if I waste taxpayer funds, you know, I can embarrass my agency and get personally sued. That's a real thing. When I was chief of staff at 18F, I bought personal manager liability insurance, as was recommended to me. No kidding. Just in case there was a suit. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even think about that because most people we work with are, they're corporations, which means whatever we've got general liability insurance, you know, we're, we're a corporation with liability insurance. And so, yeah, so the, that idea of exposure at the, not just the sort of fiduciary level, but the personal personal level. level. Yeah. That, that I could see how somebody would be more careful with a little risk averse procurement. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. That is, that is a thing to know. There's also different ways, if I remember correctly, that like the decisions have to be structured, structured. So you have to get like X number of bids Yes. Um, the bids have to be kind of meeting a certain. So so you, you do kind of have to not only structure how you make the decision, but structure how you kind of socialize that decision and people can actually like interrupt. Yes. And process. they can actually sue over an award that they believe was awarded wrongly. Right. Like not fairly based on the criteria that you have set out in advance that you're going to use with a point system for the award. So writing, you know, you have to write the full criteria of this is how we're going to rate each of the responses to the wow. RFP. And you usually, I think it depends on the threshold and which level of government, but you you quite often have to have different people write those from rate on them. Oh. But isn't that the process that got us in the healthcare.gov mess? Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> the example that I saw was having to do with like hosting services. Like I think what's interesting about it to me is that there are decisions that we take for granted working in the field, right? We're like, oh, yeah, of course you would put your small static site on AWS, right? But that's not an assumption that you can necessarily ride in a government um, contract because you have to explain like these are the requirements for the hosting right. service that I decided on. Yeah, all the, I mean there are a bunch of mechanisms, especially in the federal government, to make things easier, and some of them are successful. You're right that 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 process that was exactly intended to steward public funds and uh, ameliorate favoritism or any kind of bias in the process does also end up uh, aiming you at people who are able to get through the process. I mean, you take a process that's supposedly sound and you put it in the hands of people who aren't, maybe don't have the best or smartest of intentions, and it turns into a cover-your-ass process mm. where everybody had their ass properly covered. <laughs> it's good when everyone yeah. has we, their ass covered. I want to talk about now. Right. I want to talk about, like, you got a bunch of designers out there want, wanting yeah. to help. And I've noticed this in the last couple of years, the desire to want to do something meaningful, yeah, I think is now more important to a lot of people than the desire to make a boat boatload of cash. Mm-hmm. The public sector seems like a place where you can do something meaningful. 
I think that's true. At many of the levels that you spoke of, federal, state, county, city, yep. et cetera. So if I had one goal out of this podcast today, it would be making sure that those people had a clear step one in finding out how to do that. So I, I don't know if there's one. Um, one of the best ones you can take, actually, is to look up your local code for America Brigade. So we have one right here we in San Francisco. We have two in the Bay Area. Actually, we three, in the, if you count San Jose. Yep, Open Oakland is Tuesday nights. Code for San Francisco is Wednesday nights. And I can't remember when the San Jose group meets, but they're also weekly. All of those groups. Uh, Ch Chicago Hack Night is the longest running one. There are over a thousand meetings now, I think. So you can just go to those and hang out. Go to those, you hang out, you meet people, people notice in those groups, notice of opportunities. So that's, that's a, if that's, if you want a single first step, hmm. that's a first step. And, and there's the, a code for Tulsa. This is not just hip biggest cities. <laughs> and are those just, I love you, Tulsa, you're hip. are those <laughs> just opportunities within Code for America or are they, are they? Oh, no. Okay. So the brigades are volunteer organizations. And uh, they do a lot of work with their local municipalities. And they've all now, they were started in 2012. So they've all now spent some time, you know, normally at first sort of busting in the door maybe to different reactions. But now they all have pretty good relationships with their local governments. And so if those are mostly municipal relationships, still the counties know if they have something to put out there, they should maybe send somebody by on Wednesday night to talk about that. And they all have mailing lists. And so people also send things that direction in, in regional context. And you just kind of get a flavor of the kind of work that people are doing, too, mm -hmm. and, and how that works. So, so that would be a first step to figure out what's going on. That's then, a great one. You know, there's a, if you are interested in campaigns, that's uh, another great way for designers to contribute. There are a couple of organizations that help. So Tech for Campaigns or the Ragtag Team all help place people with campaigns. Not all of those are paid jobs, but again, um, if there's something that you care about, there's quite likely a campaign out there mm -hmm. that needs a designer. Okay. And, and that's Tech for Campaigns. Is that a website? That tech for Campaigns, I believe, is just techforcampaigns.org. Okay. And you got ragtagteam.org as well. Cool. And so I think a, a lot of people right now might be concerned that, you know, I want to, like, I, I, I believe the government provides you know, like important services. I, I want to help with that. What is the relationship? And this is, you know, a sort of a complex question. What's the relationship between helping government and working with the particular administration in power? It was so interesting to learn about that when I took a two-year term and six months into it, a very unexpected election happened. Mm -hmm. There's a dividing line between careers and politicals. And so term employees mm -hmm. are kind of in a weird side of that. And, and a term employee is you're an employee for X number of X years. X number of or, years or sometimes okay. even mm -hmm. X number of months. Mm -hmm. Can you explain why that why that is? That's specifically with 18F. We're, we're the we're term? Talking. Yeah, the term. Um, it's because of the specific hiring authority that they used, which is another flavor of procurement. Okay. So they were able to bring people in outside of Washington, out specific pay grades, because they were able to use something called Schedule A, um, which has several parts. So some people were Schedule AA, some people were Schedule AR, and I can't say I know the difference. Um, but it was a, a hiring authority that was set up to bring technologists in. And because of the way that the federal um, GS level hierarchies and so forth work, you can't just hire a bunch of people at the top of it as 
permanent people. Mm-hmm. So you're in for a set amount of time and then you got to go. Yeah. It's like Menudo. <laughs> Thank you for the 80s reference. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like that. So so I did a two-year term. Um, there was the option to extend another two years. I decided I might do that two years in a few more years, just because okay. I wanted to come back out and, uh, you know, do some work in my own time zone. So, mm-hmm. so you can go back. You can tack on another two. On There's not like that. a term limit for, uh, I don't believe on that particular authority okay. that there is. Okay. 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 It's complicated. It's Procurement, complicated. it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, there's one thing you take away yeah. besides go to your Code okay. for America Brigade. Okay. So going back to the two types of, so there's the, the, political the careers people, and the politicals the careers and the politicals and the the politicals are like come in with a particular administration they're appointed mm-hmm. rather than being in place so there's certain roles that are always appointed like the heads of agencies and you see this in other levels of government too mm-hmm. right that you know mayor comes in there's a bunch of department heads mm-hmm. that they appoint okay. um sometimes uh, you have more contact with electeds as they're called in the <laughs> smaller governments so <laughs> politicals are there to implement a particular administration's agenda. Careers are there to keep the whole thing running and sustain it, whatever the politicals are up to. And there's some really interesting rules. So there's a thing called the Hatch Act for federal employees, which means they cannot use their federal position for politics in any fashion, which is sort of, you know, you can't have a political sticker on your federal laptop. Mm. You cannot fundraise, you know, you can't make a quick fundraising call from a federal vehicle. (laughs) Even if you happen to be driving a rental car that day, it's just right out. You can't talk about who you wish would win the election in a federal building. You are allowed, like any citizen, to have opinions about a particular administration or official, but it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not in the best of taste to express them at work. And, and so <laughs> federal folks have a wonderful way of not expressing that, but saying, well, the previous administration favored X, Y, or Z, expanding access to services, let's say. Mm-hmm. The current administration has a different view. And we're trying to sustain X or Y mm-hmm. in the new administration. And so here's our plan to do that. So it's like figure, so it's like when 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 they throw shade on on British baking shows, you have to really understand how they do it. Yeah, yeah. If you had chopped the walnuts finer, they would have been better distributed in this cake, which was like a view held by the previous the previous administration, administration yeah. and the current administration. Right. We don't like, really care where the nuts fall. <laughs> one of the important things about that is when somebody who is actually a public serving public servant decides to resign in protest, that gets a lot of attention, especially if they're high level. Because they're used to working with different administrations, Yeah, they do it all. I mean, I talked to people at GSA who had, you know, were on their fifth administration change. Like, oh, yeah, another presidential transition. This will be interesting, kid. You know, and then, of course, this one was quite... Interesting. (laughs) Off the scale of the usual definition of interesting, but they still have these ways to talk about it and feel okay about it. But I, I guess, you know, the point I wanted to make about protest resignations is that's, you know, it's kind of a beasting power, right? You can only use it once. Mm-hmm. But if you do use it as a serving public servant, it has a lot more power than what you or I outside of government could do as a protest. Wow. So the fact that they're bought in in that way gives them a certain, you know, we've seen a few people from this administration do that. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it, it's interesting to have that long, that longer term view because I think in contrasting what's happening, especially in Silicon Valley, with thinking about solving problems over the longer term, like most technology companies have a very short view. It's either until the funding runs out or <laughs> what's the runway? Yeah, what's the runway? Or once you, you know, if you IPO, then it's like quarter by quarter. And the idea that you'd be in there solving a problem through any admission, decades. any yeah, dec- decades, that is... I and think, relationships yeah. take place over decades, professional ones. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't think anybody in the private sector right now gets to throw any shade at people wearing in, working in the current administration. Because when we see what's happening in the private sector... Oh, yeah. Jeez. Oh, yeah, like, there's... Come on. No, yeah. Not much high ground to be had in places. So, so Sid, you were at ATF. you were... Six months in when the administration changed. Yeah. And then you went for another year and a half. That's right. What was that like? What, what like, what did that do to you? Um, <laughs> and and I, I know that you were, you signed up to, to do a thing and yeah. you did it and that's commendable, but it couldn't have been easy. It had its hard moments. I think the day after the election in the San Francisco office, which I don't think I'll be shocking anyone by saying was a heavily democratic set of mm-hmm. people outside of the office was very, very strange because everyone was shaken. Everyone was feeling very uncertain and no one could talk about it at all. And so until sort of one or two o'clock after lunch, when people started saying, oh, we can walk outside the building and take our badges off and talk about this. Let's go for a walk. No one quite knew how to process anything. And I think there were, you know, there were the sort of nightmare fears of what could have happened, right? You know, will we be asked to build the database of Muslims in the United States? Yeah. Nothing like that took place. Um, I think that would have been a really easy decision to say, we're out. (laughs) Did you have a line like in your head? I'm not asking you what it was. Yes, I did. You did. I I actually wrote one down. Um, Okay. That was one thing that I I thought was important was just, um, but honestly, I do that with almost any job. Yeah, Fair totally. enough. Yeah. Right. You know, and, Actually, and that's it, such good advice to designers because I think that people don't make that a practice and it's so important. Mm-hmm. I've always done that with every job and it really helps, uh, I think, when you're transitioning, no matter whether you work in government or, or yeah. business or, or even if it's your first job in your career, it gives a trajectory. It does. And, you know, the one time I had to use it, I was completely flustered, but I knew that I had written that down. And so I was able to say... That's my line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that wasn't actually in this last government job. Yeah. Um, so I felt good about that. I also felt that if if I ever felt that I needed to resign in protest to draw attention to something, I'm a privileged person in a position of financial comfort with a partner who also works. So that was good. And I also am privileged to know a lot of people, probably could get the tech press to take notice, right, if I made a stink after leaving that job. And so I felt... Like, if I hit that line, I would know what to do, um, and I didn't end up hitting it. Were you still able to do good work? Absolutely. Um, We did a lot of good work. One instance, which I know is okay to talk about because I also talked a little bit about it at the Code for America Summit, good work was losing in the best possible way, Um, you know, preventing too much loss from something that was really cool that was being worked on. And then Mm -hmm. the current administration decided that they had a different perspective in this case, on um, an international coalition for reporting data about natural resource extraction. Mm. 
And so the team was able to, and largely through design work with partners in the agency, figure out um, a way that was congenial to the current administration to continue presenting this data, even if we were withdrawing from the coalition, which means that we have a lot more transparency into that than we would have if those people weren't in place Mm -hmm. doing that expert design work on a question that was really uncomfortable. Wow. And now you're working for the state. Now I'm working for the state, yes. The state of California. Yes, the judicial branch. How's that? Um, I love it. Um, I'm still a couple of months in, and so doing lots of exploration, meeting folks. Uh, It's wonderful to be working in my time zone. And um, (laughs) as with every government engagement I've done, I'm finding incredibly mission-oriented people who Mm -hmm. have decades of domain knowledge. One of the fun things about working in government, actually, is that um, I am almost 47, and I'm the youngest person in a lot of the meetings I go to. (laughs) (laughs) This doesn't happen a lot in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Also, people have decades of domain knowledge. People are actually smart, instinctual designers a lot of the time. And so if I can just provide them a little bit of what I know from my training and experience, I can often give them some superpowers. And the scope that really any government agency has, but in this case, you know, the whole judicial branch is really involved in people getting to exercise their rights and Mm -hmm. getting to get what they need um, from governments or corporations or other parties. Um, So if those people get uh, a little bit better at design or a little bit more involved with design, assuming it's done well, there's a whole lot that can come out of that. So I'm excited for it. That's cool. So you went from federal to state. Yep. You're working, you're working with four less people by definition. Yeah. But you're closer to them. Yeah, that's that's right. So there's always been a trade-off because Code for America, where I worked for several years, works mainly with municipalities. So you're working for less people, but it's a lot easier for a mayor to take initiative than, say, a governor or the president. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so the mayor can say, this website is terrible. We're going to fix it this year. Okay. And a city probably has one main website, mm-hmm. which encapsulates most of its functions. And so if you actually successfully execute that project, you've made a big difference in really what are a lot of people's main touch points with government. Yeah. Cool. But you've only made it for the people that are in that city. Right. Um, So one of the things that CFA does well is try to connect cities together and have them learn from each other and adopt Mm -hmm. things that other people have done, get people to implement. But yeah, it's it's a completely different play. You're kind of like centralizing something that's decentralized. Yeah. And as a market, we were often constrained to work with cities sort of 100,000 and above or maybe Mm. go down to 80,000 and above. And Mm -hmm. there's about 300 of those, if I remember correctly. Um, Well, there's some 20,000 municipalities in the United States. And so that includes towns of, you know, 500. Um, Maybe the town of 500 doesn't have that many functions, but I can tell you the town of 15,000 has to do nearly as many things as the city of San Francisco in terms of just providing services. You've got, you're going to have parks, you're going to have safety, you're going to have a library, you're going to have all kinds of registrations, building permits. All that stuff is pretty much the same at the scale of 15 or 20,000 as it is at 1.5 or 2 million. Mm -hmm. And so whoever figures out how to help all those towns of 15 and 20,000 is going to do a lot of good and make a lot of money, honestly. And do you think that the the work being structured like that has to do with like the services that those governments are used to having, whereas like technology kind of scales differently, right? It does. I mean, the you know, right, San Francisco, especially because it's a city and county, like the the difference in budget and IT staff between San Francisco and Oakland 
is really, really substantial, even mm-hmm. though San Francisco is only That's twice the population of Oakland. Oh, wow. Um, and if you get even to a city of 80,000, they'll often have a three or four person IT department to right. cover everything from the printers to the website. So doing thing, you know, there you're really talking about a product strategy, right? Making mm-hmm. some kind of tools that help those people do a great job because they really want to. Right, right. Yeah. And, and something that we've found that sometimes a challenge is anything that touches technology like a website is conceived of as a technology, technology. project. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah, I see there's some recognition here. <laughs> yep. And we've had we've had trouble when we All come in. All the joy just went out of everybody's uh, face. <laughs> no, it's it, it's not joy. It's it's the it's the joy of this particular challenge because I think we we've had had trouble when we've gone into potential client organizations and said, well, you're talking about this like it's a technology problem, but the technology is really the easy part. The hard part is that it's like an organization and communication and prioritization problem. And that can be such a tough sell that we've had clients go with Somebody technology. who's just going to do what they say. It's just going to do what they say. And we're like, oh, you're setting fire to money. Like, have you? <laughs> you're and, not going to be happy at the end yeah. of this, but you'll be able to say that you executed the contract. Yeah. Right. So have you? Yeah. I'm sure you've dealt with that, but have you found a way to? <laughs> Why are to, you talking to us about getting along? We just want a Drupal shop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for real. I'm, yeah, yeah. So I actually think that you, Erica, articulated something that I've been trying to articulate for years a few weeks ago. Sweet. Um, I had to go hunting through your <laughs> tweets. Uh, <laughs> because I, I, when I was working on municipal sites a lot, which was for a couple of years, and really thinking about what is a municipal website, um, one of the things that I came up with and kept saying to people was, most of the current sites are about the government. Mm-hmm. And really what they need... What should be happening is that they should be the government doing the people's business in the online yeah. space. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a very different way of thinking about a website. And when you said the other week, website is a material, yeah. oh, what yeah, can yeah. you do with mm-hmm. website? Getting people to think that way makes a really big difference. And again, I don't really know a way to do it except having friendly and skilled people hang around with them. Um, yeah, I kind of, <laughs> it's got to be socialized. Yeah, I mean, that's that there's, there's no that, a tool Gawande article from a few years ago mm-hmm. called slow ideas that I send to almost mm-hmm. everyone oh, who cool. tells me they want to be in civic tech that talks about you say that human labor is on is not scalable. Mm-hmm. But actually, if you want to scale an idea, the thing to do is send out just armies of people mm-hmm. to make friends with oh. people who are doing something the old way. And oh. That's a lot of what I see myself doing a lot of the time mm-hmm. is just, you know, I have some advantages over some of the folks who try to go into this. I've got gray hair. I'm, you know, I feel to a senior government person like maybe I'm someone that, yeah, I could go to lunch with her. That doesn't feel threatening like mm-hmm. there's some kid in here. Mm-hmm. And so then I can be really open about my practice and what I do. And, oh, were you talking to customers? Have you ever done that? That's interesting. Yeah, that's actually something I've done a fair bit of. I mean, you know, if you're ever interested in talking about what you do or I'm happy to look over something for you, you just start to get into, you know, and I I think I make it really clear that I have a tremendous amount of respect for the domain expertise that they have in, you know, whatever it might be from GSA Schedule 70 procurement mechanisms to running a municipal parks department. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's very easy for like within Silicon Valley for us to say like, oh, these processes and procurement and even, you know, even with Mule, you know, oh, this is just so, so needlessly involved and clearly is protecting the interests that are not ours. But on the other hand, there's a great deal we can learn 
from these longstanding in institutions about how to slow down and how, how do you have slow knowledge? Like we, we've been working a lot with the Wikimedia <laughs> Foundation. I and like that their, phrase. Their yeah. CTO, like uh, she, she gave, gave us that phrase that, you know. Slow knowledge. Yeah, Wikipedia yeah. has to be slow knowledge. And so you can't really easily compare it to other websites per se because the point is that they're making this kind of lasting thing. And, and I think a lot of companies here don't have that goal. Yeah, I've been trying, you know, as I've been thinking about, you know, not just government, but other institutions, like, okay, what, how do we know we're in an institutional space? What is that? Mm. And the thing I have right now is that it's something that acts not just at scale, but over time. Mm. And that brings a whole nother dimension into how you consider designing towards it. Yeah, I think that's a, that's such an important concept. And we're so, it seems like, Every conversation about design is about this on-demand world that the internet has enabled and nobody mm -hmm. has patience for these things and then wonder why like everything's broken all the time. It's yeah, I was I actually just recently been hearing about, you know, people complaining that a complicated court process doesn't get done in half an hour um, because there's an expectation that, you know, any efficient process takes a short amount of time. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it, yeah. So it's a, it's a combination of, of spending all your time on the internet and then watching courtroom dramas, I think that have been streamed <laughs> to you on Netflix. And you're like, why does the actual court it's because it's still shocking when you read, you read, oh, someone was arrested for a crime two years ago and the case is just now coming to trial. And then that goes, and it just seems like no one has their head at that yeah. Well, I mean, judge, I mean, jury, executioner, let's do it all right there. <laughs> very quickly, very efficiently, catch you, put you down. So I think that's another... We, we have been moving towards that model with what, some Americans. With some... <laughs> yes. Yeah. The efficiency, which is a, such a god in Silicon Valley, is yeah. not always the right god and is often... Absolutely correct. ...in opposition to resiliency. Mm. And mm -hmm. institutions have to have resiliency. Right. So... You know, it's, uh, someone, when I was working for the federal government, one of last year's hurricanes that was so bad, uh, they put a call out for people to come and, you know, spend some of their leave time and, and deploy out to help with just basically whatever needed to be done. And someone said something really disparaging about, you know, this just shows me that government is totally inefficient and wasteful that they have, you know, all these people who can just take time off work and go do this. And for me, it sort of said the opposite. It's it's okay, government is staffed, and it's staffed a lot less than it used to be, frankly, but mm -hmm. it is staffed for peaks. Mm -hmm. It is staffed because sometimes you get two hurricanes right on top of each other in the same season. And like I said, almost everybody agrees that if there's a hurricane, the government probably ought to assist you in some fashion. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that's that's an interesting thing to think about, about the the volatility of circumstances, which is is something that that, you know, we don't talk about being adjacent to Silicon Valley. It's always like it's up and to the right or something like that. But <laughs> but you don't think like in any complex system, there's there's going to be a lot of volatility and it's it, and, and you want to be prepared for that and you want to anticipate. I think there's an idea that you can't control things like it doesn't matter how good of an engineer you are. Right. I, I think there's a little maybe a little bit too much optimism in engineering that doesn't account for, you know, people are a little chaotic. People at scale are super all over the place. Environments 
are unpredictable and uncontrollable. We can see trends. Mother Nature is mad at us. Yeah. Wow. Californians on fire right now. Yeah. And yeah, the idea that that you can't just um, that you can't predict and that you have to prepare is maybe a little anathema. <laughs> well, I think what's weird is that maybe that responsibility for like preparing for those times has kind of fallen too far to the individual. Yeah. Right. So, so I think that was the role and, and technology kind of shared in that, right? Like you think about the ATM as one of the first <laughs> disintermediating uh, technologies and the main patents filed for the ATM are actually weatherproofing. It was like one of the most exposed oh, elements of technology, right? Oh, yeah. And so that so that was a priority concern, but then everything like moves into your phone. And now like whether your phone works in a volatile environment depends on you. Oh yeah. Hey, I got my stuff's in the cloud, you know, yeah. whatever. Uh, I mean, drop like, your phone, don't drop your phone. Yeah. Your phone smashes in a scenario. It's on it's on you. Like there there's no entity saying like, mm. oh, well, <laughs> the it's copper. Funny, though, there are, right, there are starting yeah. to be these different phone contracts where yeah, it's like totally. you get a replacement if you break it. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah. yeah, it's getting mm -hmm. recognized differently, but only now, right? Yeah. 10 years into this. I, um, more than that. I was in DC last week and I um, got to meet with a friend of mine who has this nonprofit um, called Everyone On. Oh, yeah. And they were trying to get um, internet service as being a part of Lifeline. How are they doing? Because that seems really important at this point. Yeah. So Everyone On is a nonprofit and they're uh, focused on, um, I think, man, I'm going to screw up all the numbers because I don't have them in front <laughs> of me. But there are, unsurprisingly, many Americans without internet service. Yep. And they do partnerships with different ISPs to provide affordable internet. And they define affordable internet as $10 a month, which surprisingly still gets a margin for ISPs because internet I is it does, yeah. so horribly priced. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think their big move was to get it included as Lifeline, which they almost did um, while Obama was president. And then that fell through. So they're doing all of these kind of, and their struggle is having these kind of specific partnerships. But it, it was fascinating to learn about because something about, you know, if you see internet access as a utility, um, historically, I think... This one I do remember. <laughs> uh, once you have over 80% of a market, then the private sector doesn't really serve. Um, and it does have to move into a, to a public right, space. Right, kind of public utility yeah. space. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, electricity was like that. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. all these. I just want to make a side note that I, actually if I could wish for one piece of data in the world, it would be county or local level internet access stats. Oh. That doesn't exist. Not that I can find, and I've been Googling for years, um, wow. and I've been asking people for years. So Pew Internet and American mm -hmm. Life is a tremendous resource at a national survey level. They produce it every three or four months, um, and it's very detailed. It's got you know people who have challenged Internet access, people who have phone-only Internet access, things like that. But there's nothing for officials in a particular locality to know what oh. internet challenges is my population dealing with and how should I think about that in delivering uh, services? So Pew has it in the aggregate, but they don't break it out like... Well, they do national surveys. Yeah. So they'll survey 800 people or something. Yeah. So that's actually, that's a good representation of the national context, but uh, it, it doesn't actually accurately represent the uh, 3,000 counties. 
County I, I level internet that. access. Yeah. Wow. So if that that sounds like a great project if people wanted to take that on, like for their yeah, well, they have to get a lot of private company data mm. because the the it's not publicly held data. Yeah, that's why Pew's doing surveys about it. So the the providers mm-hmm. have the data about how many oh. people they serve in a particular area. Oh, that's oh internet providers are generally good people. <laughs> and highly transparent. Some so companies transparent. are even better. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Hey, hey, Sid, I want to I want to make sure that. You got to get back to work, right? I do have to get back to work. Okay. So I want to thank you for your time. I got one more question. It's going to be incredibly hard to answer. <laughs> you've worked at the municipal level. You've worked, you're working at the state level. You've worked at the federal level. Yeah. Which one makes the most difference? Feel free to answer any way you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, and not just because I'm there right now, I'm betting on states in the next few years. I will tell you that the municipal level, ha- states or counties, actually. So mm-hmm. city town level has the most direct touch points with people. They have police departments and parks and swimming pools and mm-hmm. parking tickets and all that kind of stuff. Um, the federal government, with respect to the average citizen, mostly provides funding mm-hmm. um, for programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a few direct touch points like the IRS and the passport agency and so forth. But states administer a lot of those mm-hmm. federal programs and that federal money. And in that way, they can administer it very differently depending on the policies of the state. And states, I I think, (laughs) uh, at this point are getting more into this and Mm -hmm. ready. Seems like it. Yeah. California, at least. Well, (laughs) California is particularly interesting just because of its size, right? You know, it's closer in scale to the UK uh, in some ways than the US is. uh, And it, it often leads on things. So Californians... (laughs) <laughs> Look out for those opportunities. I think they still have some work to do, you know, with with getting people to work off site, which is mm-hmm. a big difference with the mm-hmm. um, the tech industry typically. Oh, yeah. We had uh, conversations recently about the difficulty of recruiting people to work in Sacramento. In Sacramento. Yeah. yeah which is it's just it's hard to ask people to move. Um, but there are a lot gateway of gateway to the Sierras people. Gateway to the Sierra. <laughs> How much work is being done in Sacramento to saucer section us the hell out of here? <laughs> I have no idea. We I, kind, I kind of hope none. <laughs> Those yeah. ballot initiatives were actually sponsored by pretty scary people from what I understand. Yeah, they were. Yeah, yeah I want California to be a, uh, a, a leader of what we can continue to work towards. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, super. Well, thank you so much. This has been a great discussion and we encourage... Anybody listening, if you have like thoughts or questions about the job of a designer or how to get involved in that, send them our way. Yeah, VOD rocks, V-O-D underscore R-O-C-K-S. Sid, thanks so much for coming in and spending your afternoon with us. And again, if you're listening and you're unhappy with where you are and tired of being in the private sector and tired of spending your life making money for people who are ruining the planet, consider going over to the public sector for a bit. Come on in. The water is sometimes choppy, but absolutely fine. Thank you all so much for having me. This was fun. Thanks, Sid. This has been the voice of design and we're done here. This season, we're asking the question, what is the job of a designer? What is the job of a designer? Send your responses to us on Twitter at VOD underscore R-O-C-K-S, VOD rocks. Or you can send us an email Ooh. to VOD, V-O-D, at 
muledesign.com. 